0: Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning, and I'm so glad we're here uh, once again studying the Gospel of John together. Uh, we sang a song a few minutes ago that said, uh, Our sins are many, and yet His mercy is more. And every week, as we open up the Bible to the pages of John's Gospel, we are encountering the Lord Jesus and encountering Him in His incarnation, where He came to us. <laughs> to seek us out, to die for us, and to put his mercy on display because we needed it, because our sins were many. And so I want you to keep that in mind every single week as we get into the text and as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this is a display of his mercy to us. So open up to John 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's that time of year here in Michigan when... The weather starts to warm up a bit, just slightly, for a short amount of time, and we begin to think about spring. We begin to hope that maybe it's just around the corner, and it's that time of year when potholes threaten to swallow any Toyota Prius that is brave enough to go outside. Of course, it's also the time of year, I'm sure you have seen this around, you get used to dodging potholes on the way to work every day, the same ones, and then someone comes and attempts to patch those particular potholes. And that's certainly an improvement. I mean, it keeps your car from ending up in the shop. It it helps a little bit. But ultimately, patching a pothole is not what it needs at the end of the day. That is a temporary fix, and sometimes a rather minor temporary fix at that. What that stretch of road needs, and I have one stretch of road in mind in particular that I take my kids to school in the mornings, and it is unbelievable. And they patched it, and you're still, it's so, the potholes are so deep, you're still going down in them, even after they've tried to patch those potholes. But ultimately, what that stretch of road needs is it needs to be torn up, and it needs a fresh coat or a a fresh seal of, of asphalt laid on it. It needs to be entirely made new and complete. And it's wonderful when that happens, right? I mean, it's not wonderful when you have to deal with the construction, but it is wonderful when there's an entirely fresh, new road laid out for you. It's a glorious thing. Your car seems to glide over that stretch of road with such ease. It's like driving in other states. I don't know if you've done that before. It's glorious. Driving becomes a real treat. It's delightful. It's as it should be. This is what it's supposed to be like to drive a car. It's it's like roads and cars were designed to work this way. The car can drive as it was meant to, and the road works as it was meant to. Now, there's a word for that sort of situation that I'm describing. It's called wholeness. Everything functions as it should. Things work. Things fit together. There's a real delight in that. Things are as they should be. Now, that idea, that concept of wholeness, when we apply it to Rhodes, you can think about that in in a number of different areas of life, right? I mean... Every area of life under, after the fall, experiences brokenness. Things don't work as they should, but then in every area, there's moments where things seem to work like they should, and and we experience what we could describe as wholeness. I mean, there's a real joy and a pleasure when your body functions as it should, right? That becomes increasingly difficult as you get older, but I think there's a reason, that's the reason why kids run everywhere because their bodies work properly. And so they find great delight and joy in running everywhere and using their energy. It's not as pleasurable when your body begins to have something like potholes, and it doesn't work as well. Now, I want you to keep that idea of wholeness in mind, right? Things working and fitting and and, and functioning as they should. I want you to keep that idea in mind because that's going to be central to what we're talking about this morning. That is the very heart of the goal of Jesus's ministry, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. This is ultimately what he's pursuing and what he's going for. It's wholeness. It's for things to fit and to work as they should. It's the grand purpose that God has for all of creation. It's what he originally intended, and then we messed it up as human beings with sin at the fall. And this is the work that ultimately God is intending to bring about. Ephesians chapter 1 describes this this purpose like this. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ... As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything functioning as it should under the authority of the creator God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything finding its place and its purpose in him. Everything finding its fulfillment and functioning properly and finding pleasure and joy in God. And Christ is the one who will bring that wholeness. That's what his ministry is all about. That's why he came. And that's the glimpse, we're going to get a glimpse of that in this passage this morning. So John chapter five is where we're going to be. And here's what I want to show you. Four truths that show us how Jesus works for wholeness. So four truths that show us how Jesus works for wholeness. The first one of these, sorry, it's a little small this morning, is this. Some seek wholeness in cultural superstition. This is obviously a wrong way to pursue wholeness, and you'll see what I'm talking about here, but this helps us to highlight and get at the purpose of Jesus' ministry. This is found in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. So last Sunday, if you were with us, we finished up chapter 4. We are steadily making our way through the Gospel of John. We finished up chapter 4, and I told you last week that chapters 2 through 4 make up a distinct section of the Gospel of John. The Gospels are always written in these cycles. They come in sections. They're very intentionally organized, and that is what John has done with chapters 2 through 4. If you'll remember from last week, chapter 2 began with a a miracle or a sign in Cana in Galilee, the water into wine. And chapter four, this cycle ends with a sign in Cana in Galilee, the healing of the nobleman's or the official's son. And so John frames that section up with those two signs so that we see that group of chapters as coming together. And now we are going to begin another whole section of John's gospel. And this section is going to run from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10. And so if you're reading through John or studying through John, you would want to make note that everything in those chapters fits together in this section or cycle that John is writing. The difference between these two sections, chapters 2 through 4, focused largely on belief in Jesus as the Messiah. You saw Nicodemus, you saw the Samaritan woman, you saw everyone being encouraged to believe in Jesus over and over again in these chapters. Jesus, or even others, John the Apostle, talk about belief. They talk about faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as we move into chapter 5, and you'll see this this morning, now, John is going to highlight the growing friction between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. It hasn't really been, there hasn't really been a lot of friction up to this point, but now Jesus is going to be presented as God the Father's equal, and this is going to obviously cause a lot of tension and friction between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. He's going to be presented as the hope and fulfillment of Israel's expectations in the Old Testament and as equal with God, and this causes problems with Jews, with the Jewish leadership there. And chapter 5 begins with this sign here and serves as sort of an introduction to this whole section. A lot of the themes for this section are going to come in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 5. So look at verse 1 as we start out here. After this, so after the miracle where he heals the official's son in Cana, in Galilee. From a distance, he heals his son. After this, verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So in chapter 4, he's back in the north, in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. And now, after some period of time, we don't know how long, he heads south again, going back to Jerusalem. Now it says that there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast this was, A lot of commentators have tried to figure that out, and we just don't know which one it was, and it's not central to the story that we know which celebration and which feast this was. But look what happens, verses 2 and 3. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude. Notice there, a multitude, a large number Of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so Jesus makes his way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem toward the south. And as he goes to Jerusalem, he heads to this one particular gate called the Sheep Gate, which would have been located near the temple, not in the temple, but near the temple along the northeast portion of the wall around the city. This was not a place that distinguished Jews went to. You would not go here if you were part of the upper crust of society, if you were a religious leader. This was a place that was dirty. It was a place for the poor and for the crippled. And there are lots of people who are located along this pool here. Now, some of you might have in your translations a verse four, and maybe you noticed, as Dick was reading this morning, if you're in the ESV, that verse four is not in there. It skips from what I just read in verse three to verse five. And so in some of your translations, you have verse four, and in the ESV, it's mentioned probably down at the bottom there. I think verse four was probably added later. It became one of those notes in the margin that sort of migrated its way into the text over time. It's not found in some of the earliest manuscripts. But you can see there that there was this belief that uh, if at a certain season of time, an angel would come down and stir the water up, and the first one in after that would be healed. And you see evidence of that belief in verse 7 that this man who ends up getting healed believes that, and we will get to that in just a minute. Now, let me just say, part of the reason that's not included as a verse 4 is that wasn't true. (laughs) There's no indication anywhere that God sent an angel down who stirred the waters up, and then the, the first one, the quickest one into the water, got healed. There is nothing like that in Scripture. There is no evidence of that. But Jesus goes to this place, and he is surrounded by the lame and the blind And he goes there to meet one man in particular. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. Very long time. We don't know exactly what his problem was. Could he, was he just incredibly weak and couldn't get, couldn't get around very well? Was he completely unable to walk and had to be carried? We don't know what his actual situation was, but he had been in a terrible situation for a very, very long time. Jesus engages this man. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, why does Jesus ask this question? Why say this to this guy in this situation? I mean, clearly the man would want to be healed. That's part of why he's lying here. And I think the answer to why Jesus asks this question, we can understand that answer as we look at verse 7. Look there at how the man responds. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now clearly, I want you to understand about this situation, this man has bought into this story, right? I mean, he believes it. He believes the lie that there's going to come a moment in time when the angel comes down and stirs the water up, and if he's the first one in, then he's going to be healed. He has bought into this. And it's important that you understand that he's bought into this because Jesus is most likely asking this question in verse 6 to try to get the man to think through whether this story that he's believing is actually true. It's like Jesus is saying, you're believing this story You know it's not true. Do you really want to be healed? Are you basing your decision to just be here and try to get into the water on this story? And what does that say about your actual desire to want to be healed? This man had bought into this story and had basically committed his life to try to get healed, to try to receive physical wholeness and well-being from this cultural story. And evidently, a lot of people had bought into this and tried to get healed this way through these waters. Now, let me bring this over to us a little bit, right? I doubt that there are any people here this morning who are buying into some sort of superstition like this. And that's what this is. It's a cultural superstition. I doubt there's anyone that believes something like this regarding physical healing, But for us, we do all the time tend to just buy into cultural narratives, don't we? We just sort of tend to grow up and live our adult lives accepting certain narratives that the culture tells us about how to find wholeness and well-being and to live the good life. So we buy into what I'll call expressive individualism. That the most important thing in life is expressing who I am as an individual and looking inside of myself and figuring out who I am and then living out my truth. And we believe if we can just do that, then we will have a complete life. Now, as I say that, probably most of you are like, well, I don't do that. But we do buy into portions of that story. We think that life is all about us and we live that way. We think that life is all about my pleasure and my happiness And we tend to live that way. To get what we want is the most important thing. The culture around us trains us from the time we're young to think that lots of money is necessary to live a full and a good life. To live with wholeness. Right now, I'll tell you, our culture is training us and instructing us that the way to have a good life is to get what I want politically. Everything in our culture right now is about politics, and we think that we can solve any problem and fix any ill by just going through the political system. That is a cultural narrative, and it's a lie. It's not true, and that works whether you think you need big government or small government. Both of those are cultural narratives that we tend to buy into and think, if we can just figure these areas out, then we can fix. A lot of things. We're Christians, so not everything. But man, if we could just get our guy in, we could fix most things. And so we buy into these cultural narratives and we start to order our lives this way. We may not believe in a pool of water that brings healing if you're the first one in it after an angel stirs it up, but we certainly buy into cultural narratives, don't we? We buy into these cultural stories concerning the good life and wholeness and what it means to live well. And many times we don't even see how far down the wrong road we've gone with these stories. And so if, if this isn't going to bring this man wholeness, if these cultural narratives aren't going to bring you and I wholeness, then what will? And that's the second truth here. Wholeness comes being made complete, being put together, put back together, comes through the powerful word of God. I mean, it's really quite simple, isn't it? It's really quite clear what happens here. Look at verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I mean, don't... It's stated so simply, don't forget what has actually happened here. Jesus speaks. A human being speaks a word, gives a command, and this man's 38 years of pain and difficulty are eradicated in an instant. The word healed here could actually be translated whole. He's made whole again. He is put back together in a moment. He is made complete. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but think about the mechanics of what's actually happening in time and space when Jesus speaks this word. What's going on? It's like creation all over again. He physically stands up and walks. Why? because his atrophied muscles, who did not function to do much of anything, are completely restored again. Muscles he probably hadn't used in years suddenly are strong and able to support his weight. Blood begins to flow as it has not flowed in years. Tendons are instantly strong again and able to support him, and he's able to walk and use his ankles again all of that happens through the spoken word of Jesus. The command here, Jesus' command, creates wholeness in an instant. And it creates life where there was once only brokenness and death. I mean, it's hard to read this and not think about the creation account where God speaks things into existence by his powerful word. And when he speaks things into existence, he speaks good things into existence. Things that work properly and function as they should. I mean, listen to later in this chapter, John five 25. We'll get to this next week, but listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Word of God brings life and wholeness. So please keep that in mind as you have access to that word every day. The scriptures, the cultural narratives are there. The lies are all around you. The lies are not just around you. They're in your heart and in my heart. And we tend to believe them and we accept them as true. But we have the truth of God's word in this book that brings wholeness and brings life out of death and brings restoration and renewal spiritually to us. We have access to it, so go to this book. But unfortunately, many people do not go to this book. Instead, they go to their own wisdom, to their own systems, to their own way of understanding the world, and they go there to find wholeness and well-being. And this is our next truth. Some seek wholeness in systems of tradition. Some people look to their own resources. And this is such a temptation for me, I know. And I'm sure for you as well. Scripture's here, it's clear. Obedience is there. Listening to the Word of God is something I can do. And yet, I so often build a way of life based on my own wisdom, my own insights my own analysis of things. Look at verse 9, because right in the middle of verse 9, the whole story pivots, right? Up until this point, we've had a story of a man who has been healed by Jesus' spoken word, and now in the middle of verse 9, everything and the whole purpose of this story in many ways pivots. Look there. Now, that day was the Sabbath, This is like a bomb dropped in the middle of the passage. We did not know this up until this point. And this is significant because keeping the Sabbath, of course, was commanded by God in the Ten Commandments, right? And this is important for the Jewish people. Right there in Exodus 20, it's given. It was a day of rest, a day to rejoice in God and to enjoy the gifts that he had given. It was a day for them to direct their focus to God. Right there in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, Therefore, the Lord blessed, right? This is a blessing to the Israelites the Sabbath day and made it holy. So this day was intended to be a blessing for the Israelites. But at some point, the Sabbath had morphed into a day dominated by extra biblical requirements and laws. And these extra-biblical requirements and laws stifled real enjoyment of God. Look at verse 10 and how far things had come from what they were intended to be. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's shocking, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. A guy who has been unable to walk for 38 years, or at least has been weak and has been lying by this pool, buying into this narrative to to get whole, is in an instant made completely well to the point where he can walk and take up his bed and carry it. And what are these people concerned about? Well, he's carrying a mat. Yes, he is. He's carrying the mat that he was lying on because he couldn't carry it a few minutes ago. Now he can walk. Now, the Old Testament did forbid work on the Sabbath. You can see it right here in Exodus 20. And this is one of the things that the Israelites consistently got in trouble for, not abiding by and honoring the Sabbath day, breaking this commandment. But you can see here, this is a very generalized prohibition. It's a serious prohibition, and they're not supposed to give themselves to work on the Sabbath, but this is a very generalized prohibition. Don't work on this day. But by the time that Jesus was on the scene, the rabbis had listed 39 different classifications of work, and they had spelled this out to the nth detail. And all of these different classifications of work were forbidden by them. You couldn't engage in them. One author put it like this. The Sabbath is God's blessing, not a cramping and life-denying constraint, and not a rigid and arbitrary set of rules to be obeyed. The legalism of the Jews here puts this healed man in a terrible situation that he doesn't even know how to respond. Look at verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, he, he blames Jesus. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He doesn't even know what to do with this. He's just been healed and he ends up blaming Jesus here. Look further, verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And so they continue to press and to go after this man. I have a suspicion that they know exactly who did this. But Jesus, completely opposite of the Jewish leader's approach to this, goes after this man and finds him and turns his attention ultimately toward spiritual wholeness. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I don't think here Jesus is drawing a connection between some sin, some specific sin that this man had committed and his, uh, his physical ailment. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying God is punishing you for stealing by causing your legs to stop working. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. But what he is doing is making a general connection between sin and suffering. Why does your body experience pain? Why do things not work as they should? We may not be able to tie it, and we probably shouldn't try to tie it to a specific sin, but we suffer physically, we get diseases, the world is broken Because of sin. The curse of sin is ultimately behind all the physical suffering that you and I experience. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's drawing a connection between these two because ultimately he wants to draw a connection between physical wholeness and spiritual wholeness. Our need for physical wholeness, when your body aches, when your body doesn't work, when it's difficult to get out of the bed in the morning, when things don't go as planned physically, and you need physical healing and well-being, that should draw our attention ultimately to our need for spiritual wholeness as well. And that comes through the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here, is to point this man to his greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin. It doesn't seem like he gets it, though. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And once the Jewish leaders are clear that it was Jesus, they go after him for violating their systems of tradition. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And you can see here that the anger at Jesus reaches a new level, right? I mean, so far in the Gospel of John, they've been kind of curious about his ministry. They've been interested in his ministry. That's why he left Judea to go up to Galilee, because they were were giving him more attention, because he was baptizing more than John. They've been interested in his ministry. They've questioned him on where his authority comes from. But now things have been amped up to a new level. Now they are going to actively try to stop him. Why? Because they had built these systems of tradition and rules that they believed would bring them spiritual well-being and wholeness. And they were basing their faith in their systems and their guidelines. And Jesus challenged that system. And he challenged that system by performing this sign on the Sabbath. This brings us to our last truth here. Wholeness is central to the work of Jesus. Everything has led up to this point for us. Jesus defends his healing in verse 17. Look there. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, before we get to what Jesus means by this statement, I just want to make sure that you understand this miracle is not just a miracle. It is a sign. We've talked about how important it is that John calls certain miracles signs later in chapter six, verse two, this will be called a sign. And so it's important that you remember that and that you know that because A sign is a bit different than a miracle because a sign points beyond itself to some truth about the character and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read a miracle or a sign here and you think, well, this just shows that God is powerful because he can heal, then you haven't gone far enough and you're not really understanding what is going on in this gospel, A sign points to the glory of God. John 2 and verse 11. After Jesus turns the water into wine, it says that this was the first sign that he did and he manifested his glory through this. That's more than just showing he's powerful. It's putting his character and the reality of what his ministry is like on display. It teaches us something significant about the ministry and the work of Jesus. And so we learn what that is by his statement in verse 17, by his response. Now, there are two major pieces that you need to understand that make this sign significant here. It's not just showing that Jesus is powerful. It's pointing beyond that to something else. Two things. First, in verse 17, when Jesus says this, what he's saying is, I am working like God on the Sabbath because I am God. That's what he's saying. So at this time, there was this discussion among the Jews as to whether God kept the Sabbath or not, which is kind of interesting, whether he worked or not on the Sabbath day. So, of course, in Genesis 2, right, right at the beginning of Genesis 2, you find God resting on the Sabbath, and so there was this whole discussion, there was this whole debate about whether he continues to rest on the Sabbath or not. The general conclusion was that it was necessary for God to continue to work because somebody had to uphold the universe and keep it going, and that would be God's job, and so that's what he did. So he does work on the Sabbath. That was the general conclusion that the debate came to. Jesus is sort of entering into that debate here and effectively saying that since God works on the Sabbath, it is fine for me to work on the Sabbath too. And when you make that connection, you're bringing about the implication that you are equal to God. And they clearly understood him to be saying that. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I told you there were two important parts to Jesus's answer that point us to the character of his ministry. The first one is what he says in verse 17 is subtly or even not so subtly pointing to his deity. The second part is, The second piece of this that's so significant has to do with the purpose of the Sabbath and what this miracle, this act of healing points toward ultimately. What was the Sabbath originally for? Well, in creation, the Sabbath day was the culmination of the whole creation account. Everything in the created universe points to that day. It ends the week. It ends the creation account, Sabbath, and you find God resting. And what is the purpose of all of creation? What does everything exist for? Ultimately, it exists to find its rest and its purpose in God, in relationship with Him, rightly ordered under His authority. That's what the Sabbath was for, and that's what God was showing by having the weekend with the Sabbath day there wholeness in God, delight in Him, finding our culmination and our purpose and our end in Him. One author put it this way, and I think it's helpful to read this to you. On the seventh day, we finally discover that God has been working to achieve a rest. This seventh day is not a theological appendix to the creation account, just to bring closure now that the main event of creating people has been reported. Rather, it intimates the purpose of creation and of the cosmos. God does not set up the cosmos so that only people will have a place. He also sets up the cosmos to serve as his temple in which he will find rest in the order and equilibrium that he has established. Everything finds its culmination as it becomes whole and rightly related to him. So, in other words, healing a man on the Sabbath is the perfect day to do it. It's the perfect day to do it because of what the Sabbath points toward. God's purpose for the Sabbath and ultimately for all of creation is that everything would find its rest and delight in him as it is brought under his authority and made whole in him. So it's the perfect day to do it and that is what Jesus is pointing to about his ministry. It's all about this, finding wholeness and rest and delight as we are made complete in God and rightly related to him. Jesus heals on the Sabbath to point to the true purpose of his ministry, to restore people to wholeness in their relationship with God. This is what it's all about. It's about wholeness. And it's spiritual wholeness, but Ultimately, gloriously, it will be physical wholeness too when we reach the kingdom. All will be made right. You will be spiritually free from sin and your body will finally work as it's supposed to. And you will be able to delight in and enjoy God as all things come together through Christ and under God's authority in his kingdom. That's how God originally designed creation. That's why it culminates in the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus heals here the sabbath ultimately points to the goal of all creation rest in our relationship with god wholeness in him and in fact jesus clarifies that in john 7 they ask him about this and he's discussing this very sign and listen to what he says in verses 21 to 24 jesus answered them i did one work What work is it? It's the one we just read about. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Jesus is like, this is the perfect day to do this because it's about wholeness. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So I'd like to give you a few questions here as we close to consider in light of this whole passage and this idea of wholeness. Very quickly, and these are written, I think most of them on the sermon reflection questions in the back there. What are some cultural narratives that you have believed and are using to pursue wholeness in your life? Cultural narratives that you have believed and are using to pursue wholeness in your life. Second, in what ways does your life demonstrate that you believe spiritual wholeness only comes through God's word? We say it, but what about your life shows that spiritual wholeness comes through this book? What practices do you have that show that is true for you? And then lastly, who in your life needs spiritual wholeness, needs the wholeness that is offered through Jesus, and what is the next step that you can take to bring them toward that end, to increase the likelihood that they will encounter Jesus and be made spiritually whole through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning and the gift of wholeness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to find our wholeness through your word and through the work that you have done on our behalf, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace and the gift of mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.